Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw handed us John Morris's score for the 1974 Mel Brooks monster movie spoof, Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein was written by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks, based, of course, on Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. It was produced by Michael Gruskoff, and it was directed by Mel Brooks. John, people probably can already guess what Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks is, but in case they can't, tell them what Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks is. It is Mel Brooks's loving parody of old universal monster movies. Such as? Such as, such as Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and various other things of Frankenstein. It stars Gene Wilder as Dr. Frederick Frankenstein. Frankenstein? Frankenstein, sorry. Frankenstein? <laughs> also stars Madeline Kahn as his fiancée Elizabeth. Marty Feldman as assistant Igor. 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 Terry Garr as Inga. Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. Sound effect. <laughs> Eventually, Peter Boyle as the monster. And Kenneth Mars as Inspector Kemp. Is there anyone else who needs to be named? I mean, can you name the vocal cameos that Mel Brooks himself does? Right, Mel Brooks as Cat Hit by Dart <laughs> and some other things. Oh, and Gene Hackman in a rare comedy cameo. So... Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, a descendant of the famous monster-creating Frankenstein, wants nothing to do with his heritage to the extent that he insists he pronounces his name differently. But he finds himself inexorably drawn to his grandfather's estate in Transylvania and ultimately following in his footsteps of breathing life into dead tissue. The tissue belonging to the monster Peter Boyle, who uh, suffers some of the same slings and arrows as the original monster, but to different results. Yeah, sure. The main thing is Mel Brooks movies are they making jokes all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good enough. Yeah, so, so good enough. Yeah. So like you just said, they're making jokes the whole time. This is a comedy comedy, and I don't think we've had a movie where they're really making jokes the whole time before. On this podcast, yeah, I don't think we've had a movie that's as shamelessly a comedy as this is. So uh, do you think it was funny? I certainly thought it was funny when I was 12 years old. I said that last time. Right. I'm curious how funny you still thought it was. I still thought it was uh, appealing. (laughs) Know what I mean? I mean, I still thought it was funny. It's a lot of funny stuff. I mean, it's essentially memorized for me. Right, yeah. It was hilariously funny to me at a time in my life when a big part of comedy was memorizing the comedy, (laughs) experiencing it over and over. It's kind of the perfect movie for that. So this was like revisiting that. You'd watched it more recently and... uh... Yeah, I don't feel like my views on this movie have evolved much (laughs) since I had the same relationship to it as a kid. It's, uh, you know, it's a classic. I was into this at a time in my life when... I, on the one hand, loved comedy, and like I said, loved sort of learning the jokes and the rhythms and just having it as this 
kind of musical routine in my head. That the comedy itself was a music to you? Yeah, the comedy itself. You know, Mel Brooks's mode of comedy is very much about the vaudevillian rhythms of the setup and then the payoff and the beat in between is a very particular length that he clearly has a strong instinct about. I mean, he himself is actually a quite fine musician and has written a lot of his own music for his movies and, you know, the musicals that he's made out of them. And yeah, absolutely comes from this vaudevillian instinct of getting the timing down. The idea that you tell a joke and then someone plays a rim shot, but on ching is because it's rhythmic to begin with. And, you know, like the Frau Blucher joke, for example. Oh, that one? Yeah. What even is the joke? (laughs) (laughs) Explain the joke to me, John. (laughs) That uh, she's like, uh, you know, she's torturing these horses, I guess. (laughs) Joke. (laughs) Is that really your explanation? (laughs) I think the first time it happens in the movie, it's that the horses are scared of her. She's such a scary lady that the horses are scared of her. I am Frau Blucher. That they know something about her. But it very quickly transcends that into just being a shtick for a shtick's sake. Yeah, I think that the joke has something to do with the conventions of the genre and the style they're imitating where someone says something dramatic and then the environment kind of responds because the mise-en-scene of the movie responds to it. After you, Frau Blucher. It's something like the lightning crack, you know, it's like, we must go to Transylvania, cacao, castle thunder sound effect. The sound effects people respond with the horse whinny to the line, and the characters are noting how absurd this is because they're so formulaic about it. Exactly. It's about the formula. It's about reveling in the formula. Anyway, there's a kind of music of the sound effects joke going on there. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's that kind of comedy and from a time in my life when that was a really crucial way to think about comedy. But another thing about being 12 years old that I checked back in with is that I don't... (laughs) I think I really differentiated the genre of comedy from any other genre at that age. It just felt like everything is this, right? You can make a silly joke in the middle of anything, and no matter how silly a joke you're making, the story can be taken seriously. In feeling my way through the combination in this movie of music that sounds fairly sincerely dramatic and jokes that are as absolutely, you know, fourth wall puncturing, genre puncturing as possible... (laughs) And yet they coexist, and I thought that is the way pretty much everything felt to me as a kid. I, the idea of one thing puncturing another just wasn't a possibility in my brain at that age. Do you identify with that at all? Does that ring a bell for you? I guess so. I mean, I definitely remember a sense of this Mel Brooks sensibility of the universe is there for the taking, is all around, and totally valid. <laughs> that, yeah, it definitely seems natural that, of course, everything is to be made fun of all the time. It's just something I was thinking about as I was thinking about the special tone of this movie that devotes a fair amount of its time and production and certainly the score that we'll be talking about to putting across something other than vaudeville. The easy answer is to say, well, it's there to be mocked because it's a spoof. But I don't know. Is that all it's doing? Is that what it's doing? Well, I think I described the movie at the top of the show as Mel Brooks's loving parody. It's clear that he loves it. It's clear that he wanted it to be very faithful. He went and found the guy who had the real lab equipment props from the original 1931 Universal movie. This guy still had them in his garage. They unearthed them and... These are actually the same, you know, like lightning spark generators and twirly electricity indicators and big switches to throw and all that kind of mad scientist lab set 
the same stuff from the original movie, and that was super important to Mel Brooks that he get the look of things right. Yeah, and he fought to do it in black and white, which, right. as you can imagine, is not what the studio wanted, but it was essential to his vision of this movie. And it's beautifully lit. You know, it is beautifully lit, and he instructed the cinematographer to not just mimic the lighting and the photography of the old movies, but to even exaggerate it to the point of parody. Well, maybe we'll return to this later, but it is a sort of an open question to me whether this movie is in fact making fun of the movies it resembles. I'm not sure I feel like it actually targets any of this. It just sort of reenacts it. It just does it again. It's certainly loving. I don't know if it's a parody. (laughs) Again with jokes is different from parody. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, he certainly had a very fine filter for when to, I, to borrow a phrase you've used on the show before, when to hit things with the comedy hammer and when not to. It feels chock-a-block full of zaniness, but there's also a goodly amount of restraint in just how zany and just where to put the zaniness. You know, it's a tightrope that he has to walk. And he said many times, including in one of the DVD features on the disc that we watched here, if you're trying to be funny, it's not funny. If you intend to be funny, it's not funny. You've got to be earnest. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of an odd thing for Mel Brooks, of all people, to say, because... He tries to be funny. I mean, (laughs) well, he was actually saying that in the context of the music that John Morris wrote, which, like you said earlier, plays it very sincerely. And I think that part of the answer to whether this is a parody or not is found in the way that Morris found to kind of give permission to both things at once, to give permission to have goofy, zany stuff for yucks and also a loving recreation. Yeah, I mean, he basically lays the groundwork for the whole thing in the first few bars here, which is very (laughs) impressive how much work gets done just while the first few titles are up on the screen. The first musical thought that you here in the movie. The first thing you hear at all, there's this build-up, there's tension tremolo with a timpani roll. And it builds up and builds up, and then... This is a horror shock fanfare that I I think we've mentioned on the show before. Yeah, we played it once before. We played it before because... When we were talking about the Death Star in Star Wars. Yeah, that's right. When we were talking about the little motif for the Death Star in the first Star Wars movie before John Williams had written the Imperial March for the second Star Wars movie, this was the Death Star motif. We were comparing it to other things that it sounded like. I said, uh, it sounds like the Dr. Evil theme (laughs) from Austin Powers. And then also this, which has taken on a life of its own as something called... (laughs) Dramatic Chipmunk. Right. Which is a prairie dog. It's not a chipmunk. It's an internet meme of a non-chipmunk looking uh, dramatically at the camera. And these three chords are already a self-parody to such a degree that it was the obvious thing to go to for the dramatic chipmunk. Yeah. What's similar about these three different things, the Death Star, Dr. Evil, and Dramatic Chipmunk? Why do they all sound alike? Well, what we were saying then is that there's these different shades of being referential. Uh I think the conversation in the Star Wars one was about how the Death Star is referential, but without taking it all the way to the point of comedy, even though that same move is used as comedy here. 
Although in watching this movie, I feel like it is actually on a finer knife edge than I might have remembered. When he brings out his three-chord sting, it is never really to make you laugh at how ridiculous those old movies were and how over-the-top this is. It's so clean and concise that it doesn't feel like it's at its own expense. I think it has something to do with the major seventh interval, right? Don't all of these figures kind of lean on that dissonant note that's just shy of an octave away from where it starts? It's triads with only one tone in common, which we've talked about as a very movie sound, high drama from the clashes between these chords a third apart. And yeah, if you hear them as being in the same key, then there's fairly dissonant chord implied within one key. Yeah, right. So the contour of the melody kind of moves through this dissonant note. It's like the apex of this little turn. That second one there is that major seven note that is the last note of the Dr. Evil theme and the Death Star and the the Young Frankenstein sting and the dramatic ship. Then he throws in some more major sevens. Kind of leaning on dissonance and forcing the listener to come to terms with dissonance. I mean, that chord that you're pulling out of it, would you call it a minor major seven? Yeah, minor major seven chord is the Dr. Evil chord, too. Yeah. And it's- that, certainly that chord has developed a reputation as an overripe drama from <laughs> the olden tradition. It's like too pungent for serious drama kind of chord, which was indeed popular in the 30s and 40s for uh, moments of drama in a way that it wouldn't be used sincerely now. I mean, that's the psycho chord. It's not the psycho chord, but it's the chord at the beginning of psycho, the chord that the strings all smack a few times in a row to get the movie going. So you said that Morris has done a lot of work in just the first few moments of the movie to tell us where we are. Right, because he brings this out. We get the block letters, old-fashioned, carved-from-stone letters that say Young Frankenstein and Lightning Flash, and in the background, you know, Haunted Castle on a Mountain, miniature. And these chords, it absolutely places you in the universal monster movie tradition that's the subject of the love and parody here. But then immediately... Mm-hmm. It retreats from the point being that this is overripe and old-fashioned and starts offering something that is old-fashioned, but in what seems a very sincerely expressive way. In that transition, the viewer understands that this is going to be a movie about the overripeness of this old style, but not critical of it, Mm -hmm. not picking it apart and laughing at it. It's going to be within it. Yeah, this veer, this tack that it takes away from over-the-top gothic grandeur to genuine pathos. It's such an expansive move because it puts you on this very confident footing about what the movie is doing for you. Now, as Mel Brooks's instruction to Morris was that what I want you to write for this is the sweetest, prettiest Eastern European lullaby that you can that's gonna be the heart of the movie that's what we need for this and it's the prettiest tune he could write i think it is the prettiest tune that he did write I mean, 
that's why this score is on a list. That's why we're talking about it. Absolutely. Is noteworthy, I think, for almost any movie to write a tune that strong with that much perfume to it (laughs) is rare in movies. It's not unheard of, but it's rare. I feel like the presence of that tune really centers a movie that might not seem very well centered otherwise. You hear it from the beginning and throughout consistently. I mean, it's basically the whole score. These two elements, the sting, three chords, and then this lullaby pretty much comprise the whole score. Yeah, I mean, even when they don't comprise the score, they kind of do. There's many examples of some kind of businesses going on. They're, you know, creeping through the creepy castle, whatever it is, some kind of spooky business, and we hear a little glints of the melody. Doot, 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 boop, 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 boom. That are kind of ever-present throughout it. He also uses the three chords to build mm-hmm. underscore. Right, sometimes he's able to play them with different amounts of Hollywood vigor. Like at the end of the opening scene, we hear like a quieter, more subdued version of this thing. And then he can also play it on like muted trumpets. Actually, arguably, there's only one piece of material in the movie because at least the contour of that motif, da-da-da, is the B section of the lullaby melody. In listening to these cues, these are not parodic. These are not over-the-top to mock the idiom. No, he's really doing it. He's really doing it. Yeah, the same way they're using the real sets. Mel Brooks has dressed the set like... He's really doing it. And what I was going to say is he's almost doing it with more of a sense of expressive purpose than was done in the 30s movies. If you listen to the old Frankenstein movies, the original Frankenstein just has kind of a bookend score because it's so early, 1931, and it's before King Kong. There's not really a through score. The main and end titles are just sort of a grim little march, as was the style at the time. And then Bride of Frankenstein has a Franz Waxman score that is various kinds of color, sort of all over the place, not really actually in this idiom. But then the subsequent scores and a lot of the other universal scores are by Hans Salter and some are by Frank Skinner. I think that's the style to which these three chords are referring. And what's going on in those scores is much in the manner of King Kong that we talked about. Constant churning and stirring and bubbling. The agitation of fearful thoughts and feelings. This is Son of Frankenstein, 1939 by Frank Skinner. By comparison, Morris's version is so cleaned out Mm -hmm. and clear. direct theatrical emotions rather than confused horror emotions. And in juxtaposition with the subject matter, it feels like he might be finding some new depth for a Frankenstein movie like this that was never quite as clear to hear before. It feels like, oh, something might be going on in this movie under the surface. ¶¶ 
Well, yeah, that's the effect that this decision has. This decision to make the heart of the movie this sincere, pretty melody, this real Transylvanian lullaby, rather than something scary. You know, it absolutely tells you that, well, what you have to think about here is the monster's inner life. The story of Frankenstein is the story of this creature who wants to be loved but is rejected. Putting some pathos front and center about wanting love is absolutely a more insightful thing to put in a monster movie than just like a bunch of, you know, big agitated chords. So that's your reading, is that it's about wanting love. Is that uh, what I'm hearing? Because I was going to ask you, like, close read this tune, what does it mean? Yeah, I guess that's what it means. I mean, I think it's a combination of the monster's good heart underneath its brawny frame and uh, abnormal brain. It's also an evocation of, you know, the music that soothes the savage beast. Mel Brooks apparently said something to John Morris that the music needed to represent the monster's childhood. Which is strange, because the monster doesn't have a childhood by definition. (laughs) Also, another strange thing about this movie, maybe we could talk about a little bit, is Transylvania. Uh, Frankenstein doesn't take place in Transylvania. Dracula takes place in Transylvania. (laughs) But also, in Transylvania, they don't speak German. They treat Transylvania like it's the name of a town in Germany that has its own train station. It's a whole region of Romania. Not only do they not speak German, but when the guy speaks with an over-exaggerated, hard-to-understand German accent, they all can't (laughs) understand him. (laughs) They yell, what? Right. I mean, I think the idea there is just that after a point, Transylvania came to represent, you know, Monster Town, at least to Americans, the part of Europe that they don't know enough about (laughs) to feel safe from monsters. Right. (laughs) And that's where this music comes from, too, because it's this harmonic minor scale that connotes whatever is going on in Europe that you don't understand the old country, right? I thought a little bit about our conversation about The Godfather, where music is supposed to signify some roots of heritage that go so deep that only music can express them. What else can he possibly mean by the monster's childhood? Yeah, that's a good point. He must mean the old country, the childhood of the cultural forebears. Right. So there's a scene in the screenplay. It's a cut scene that they filmed, and you can see it on the Blu-ray. I can't just drop everything in the It was supposed to be at the beginning of the movie after Gene Wilder is told that he's inherited the castle in Transylvania, and he's reluctant. He doesn't want to go there, and he and the emissary from the old country are walking down the street, and he's saying, you must go to claim your inheritance. Why would I want to go there? And there's a street musician playing the violin, playing this tune. Gene Wilder stops and looks sort of mesmerized by it. What is that? What is that tune? Curious melody. Haunting, isn't it? Of course, I wouldn't want the family to think I am a spoil sport. He stops, he goes over to the musician and he says, What is that you're playing? Uh, sorry, excuse me. What is that tune you're playing? This is an old Transylvanian lullaby. It has something. Such a quaint little tune. And he Uh, says, oh, could I see your violin for a second? And in a very Gene Wilder rhythm, says, oh, very nice. As though he's going to play the violin. Oh, I like it. It has nice balance. And then breaks it over his knee and gives it back to him in pieces. And the other guy says, why did you do that? And he says, do what? What? Break that man's violin. I didn't do that. The violinist, you smashed his violin over your knee. I did not do that. Why would I do a thing like that? Are you insane? 
it was supposed to signify that it's in the blood. He is a Frankenstein. It has something to do with the family madness. The idea of the scion of the Frankensteins who wants nothing to do with the family, but he can't escape heritage, he can't escape what he's inherited, which is somehow represented by this tune. Sure, it's all of that. I mean, the scale, these modes that connote exotic Eastern or Southern or old or ethnic in a very loose sense, because they have an interval other than a major or minor second in it. You hear an augmented second. And in fact, he accentuates it. He puts it at the bottom of a descent. Which kind of evokes in your ear the even more exotic mode that would start with that interval, where that would be the bottom of the scale. It seems like he's trying to make the most of that association. Also, this melody is full of these leaps down to an appoggiatura. You know, going da 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 da. That leap down to the note that becomes a leading tone pushing back up has such a feeling of the uh, weeping sentiment, but also the refinements of the old country, Mm. the care, the fine detail. And I especially think that this choice he makes when it goes da-da-da, da-da, and then when it goes on to the next phrase, da-da-da-da, he goes from the A natural going up to the A flat going back down. To my ear, that's a signal of old country Europeanness because the American ear would say that's too awkward to navigate to have to go from the A natural to the A flat in such proximity. Those notes, mm-hmm. you have to have a real classical refinement to be able to go around that corner and also an openness to strangeness or to the mysteries of the heart or something. And it's not just, you know, 20th century Americans looking back at 19th century Europe this way. 19th century Europe was looking at itself this way. There was such a craze for, quote, gypsy music in the classical tradition, which I think is what Morris is more or less emulating here, all these gypsy showpieces for violin. Sure. I mean... I know gypsy is usually considered offensive because it's properly the Romani people, but in reference to music, sometimes it's still used because that music was never really strictly about the Romani people or any other real world culture. Which is my point, it's a romantic fantasy. I mean, it's complicated because it has roots in real culture, but like this is Sigourney Weizen, 1878 by Sarasate, Gypsy Tunes. And it's exactly the same style. It's called Hungarian in other pieces because it's both, sort of, but the romantic fixation on this kind of music really wasn't about ethnography and they didn't really care whose culture it was. (laughs) It was just about this exotic fantasy of a mysterious old culture that's deep culture that gets at folk truths. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's evoking that. This concept of music to soothe the savage beast, which I feel like I'm most familiar with from Bugs Bunny cartoons, (laughs) also sounds like this, right? I mean, it's time to get pedantic here, John, but isn't the expression music to soothe the savage breast? Is it? I think this is a classic pedantic person correcting you thing. I think this is one of the all-time pedantic corrections. Yes. <laughs> I guess fitting that we're doing it in the context of Frankenstein's monster. That's right. We've been very good about that. In fact, this movie is very good about that, and kudos to Mel. <laughs> they never call the monster Frankenstein. All right. Yeah, I'm seeing that. Yeah, Even though it is frequently reproduced now as music to soothe the savage beast, because that seems to be what we're talking about here is savage beasts. The original poem 
we've written music to soothe the savage breast. Which Frankenstein also has. Yeah. Thank you, Doctor. Well, look, I've got an even weirder reading here I want your opinion of. Okay. You know what else that scale evokes is uh, is Jewish music, right? Sure. And you know... Mel Brooks is Jewish? Is what you're going to say? When Mel Brooks is saying you have to have a beautiful lullaby to represent the monster's childhood, and it's this European lullaby with the augmented second in it. Yeah. This is a Jewishy movie, don't you think? (laughs) It is a Mel Brooks movie. The comedy-slash-emotional climax of the story is that Frederick Frankenstein claims his heritage, he recognizes his heritage, and in that same scene is doing a, like... Oh, Mamu's little boy, you're such a good son to the monster. It's such a Jewish mother routine scene. (laughs) This is a nice boy. This is a good boy. This is a mother's angel. Um, And then he shouts, yes, I am a Frankenstein. It felt... uh... My name is Frankenstein! And then in the next scene, of course, the mother's love turns into this showbiz scene where he's a hit on the stage, which it seems like maybe they're doing like The Jazz Singer, some movie like that, a Jewish-themed Hollywood movie. And I have to point out, because this is what sort of snagged my adult mind the most, like, why, why is this going on? It has this stuff about how he's got a sexually withholding New York fiancé and then the uh, sexually available blonde peasant girl hair. And it's like right in the post-Portnoy's complaint period where suddenly this was like, oh, Jewish comedies will have this stuff in it. The sexually withholding fiancé when she prevents him from kissing her and hugging her on the train station because, you know, so as to not muss up her hair. And is that the actual invention of the elbow handshake greeting that uh, has enjoyed such a prominence in recent months? In 2020? Oh, I don't know if people were thinking of Madeline Kahn while they were doing that. They should have been. They should have been. That's the only physical contact she'll allow is for them to touch elbows. So they presaged the pandemic with all of this. Yeah, I was watching this and I was thinking that some of the sex jokes and some of the overall sexual uh, framing seemed like uh, sort of to sigh at. And then I was like, oh, I recognize this. This was a very... The word shiksa was clearly said while scripting this. I wonder how much they were consciously trying to get at something. I think that, I don't know, somehow as a psychological journey into Gene Wilder's character, the movie sort of takes on a sense that it doesn't otherwise have. It's kind of an American Jewish text in that way, don't you think? (laughs) And that music is there making this reading legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, John? Is all of this like, I don't know, Andy? Or you're like, yeah, yeah, that's there. Yeah, yeah, that's there. (laughs) It is there. Yeah, I just don't think it's uh, going too far out on a limb to observe that uh, there are Jewish overtones to a Mel Brooks movie. Yeah, but this one, oddly, seems to be claiming that this music is about Frankenstein and is about Frankenstein movies. And when you look at Frankenstein movies, it isn't. (laughs) It must be about something else. Yeah. And whatever that thing is that it's about, it's very closely tied to this movie's particular take on this material. I don't know. I have a thought. A very fertile vein of comedy that certainly Mel Brooks trafficked in is high stakes, low stakes, especially in spoof settings, you know, in parody movies. The juxtaposition between the high stakes of some overblown Hollywood concoction of a story, but it's undercut by the mundane little details that the characters have to deal with. 
you know what I'm talking about? Yes, of course. That's a very common Mel Brooks thing. Yeah. Like the villagers are forming an angry mob with torches and pitchforks to come get the monster. And we see them rampaging through the forest. And the camera lingers on somebody who hits his head on a tree branch as he's walking along. You know, it's just the undercutting of the big gesture of riotous mob with the, the small gesture of, oh, well, watch your head. So I think that that's at bottom the joke that Mel Brooks had in mind with playing up the monster's humanity and pathos and relatability. It's the big stakes, small stakes. He's a monster. He's a monster made of reanimated human flesh who may or may not be coming to kill people. But he's also a real person who, you know, like when Gene Hackman as the blind man is pouring soup on him. Friendship. He looks at the camera like, come on already with this. Yeah, yeah. Rolls his eyes. (laughs) Mel Brooks has the twin impulses that it's funny if we get to think about the monster as a real person having real person foibles and inconveniences. And it's also emotionally resonant to think of him as a real person. This is the insight, I think, that giving the monster this genuine feeling as part of its underlying humanity is both heartrending and funny because it undercuts the idea of a monster. So many of Mel Brooks's jokes are about a come down, right? Yeah, that the big Makamaks think that things are this way, but he's just a little Jewish guy from Brooklyn who says, oh, it's just this. Why do you not? Yeah, yeah, right. He treats everything that way. From the 2,000-year-old man on, a come down from an important concept to, you know, well, this is a real annoying thing I have to deal with. And I think in this movie, he says, you know, what's the ultimate come down is to come down to be a feeling, genuine human being. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, again, the reading where the lullaby theme is speaking the heart of the monster, is what you're saying. Well, it's also speaking to the heart of the monster. Yeah, that's the one I believe. Okay, but they're both there. You don't have to choose one or the other. Yeah, you're right. Um, Before we go on from this, I feel like we should appreciate that this melody, it's easy to come up with something that hits the signals that you need to fulfill the trope. Mm -hmm. Like, do something that sounds old country. Anyone can do that. It's not very hard to do it. But it is hard to do it in a way that feels so compositionally whole and elegant and like it's not reaching for these things to throw them in your face. It arrives at them by doing justice to the melodic idea that he sets out at the beginning. Da-da-da-da! And then the rest spins out from there it's true. in an organic, compositionally whole way. And I really admire that. I think the whole movie benefits from some old-fashioned classical training here. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how this would be done now, I don't think we have a composer who would really sit down and set to work building something that well-grounded. Mm-hmm. That's not a craft that you often hear brought to scores anymore. And then the most classical passage of all this second time through the melody in the main title like a concerto with the violin playing counter melody really quite beautifully done you know what else is making it feel like a fine piece and a legitimate classical composition in the manner of the old country is this performance Yes, it's played beautifully. The player, it's a studio violinist, his name was Jerry Vinci, got tasked with playing the violin solo melody here, and he is playing it in the style of the old country very much. 
And I think it's so well observed to be played with this certain technique, and it's a technique, I'll, uh, I'll admit that my wife Becky, who is a professional violinist, who's been on the show before talking about violin stuff, uh, was telling me about when we watched the movie. In fact, uh, hey Becky, you want to come in here for a second? Sure, resident violinist reporting for duty. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Andy. Hi. You were very nearby. I Well, you know, I live here, so that's handy. Yeah, it's true. So we were just talking about how this melody really feels like it is from the old country. But you were telling me about how also the performance of it feels old-fashioned in that way. Very much. Like, it made me giggle when we sat down to watch it. You know, violin playing, like anything else, is subject to fashion and trends. And the fashion, when this movie purportedly takes place, is a style of violin playing that actually very much comes from the old country. It feels very Eastern European. It's a style of playing with a very fast, very intense vibrato that's also kind of wide. Vibrato. Okay, explain exactly what is vibrato. Sure. Vibrato is the rapid lowering and raising of a pitch. When I teach it to students, I explain it as creating shading on a drawing and depth. It adds warmth, as you can hear me playing here. Notes without vibrato tend to sound sort of steely and icy. So you're kind of waggling your finger back and forth on the fingerboard. Yeah, I'm waggling. That's what I'm doing. It's waggling. Yeah. When you see a violinist go, you know, move their hand back and forth, they're making a small fluctuation in actual pitch. Yes, exactly. You're rocking your finger back and forth is what you're doing. I take rocking. I'm going to take issue with waggling. And we choose when and how we use vibrato. The width and speed and quality of our vibrato is something that changes our tone dramatically. In a modern style, there's more subtlety and nuance to the vibrato, more variation in the width and intensity. But in that old Eastern European style of violin playing is a very intense, very wide vibrato throughout almost every note. Here's my take on that. And then it's complemented by lots of what we call portamento, which is sliding in and out of notes. I mean, the term that gets used all the time for it is really schmaltzy playing. Hmm. The Yiddish that gets used for it is schmaltz. Well, it's not a coincidence that there's a Yiddish word for that, right? it's not. Yeah. Okay, so for contrast, now play the same melody, if you would, but with, as you say, a more modern application of the broad. It'll just be a more subtle performance. It's not that I'm not using any vibrato and I'm not using any portamento, but I temper it a little bit. It sounds slightly less old-fashioned. Yes, I see what you mean. That still sounds very nice, but it doesn't have that extra richness and kind of luxurious quality that it's not a parody. Yeah, it kind of wallows in it in the first one. Right. Don't get me wrong, I love this old style of playing. There's an enormous amount of charm in it. It is of a time, and in my opinion, both the composer and the violinist did a really excellent job in capturing that. Well, thanks so much for playing for us. Sure. When you teach it, do you talk about it ever in terms of the human voice? I feel like my impression is that the wide vibrato in string technique Mm -hmm. matched an era in which there was a taste for a wide, intense vibrato in vocal technique. 
and that, you know, that's why the portamentos are there. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, it's the fashion and trend of the time. And when you think about that very precise, wide vocal vibrato of the, you know, the 20s and 30s, I think that gets reflected in string technique as well. And often, you know, string players are linked to the human voice. There's a lot of similarity there, and I don't think that's an accident. I think they probably followed the same trends. There was also such a premium put on intensity of expression. Yeah. If you could convey the agony of the eternal human right. soul, exactly. that was prized. The angst of human experience. When I hear it in a movie like this, I think that's what the violinist is supposed to be getting across, is that this is a movie about the most intense feelings anyone could ever have. <laughs> sure, sure. Angst and misery and despair and yeah. the human condition. Yearning. Yearning. Yeah. And to me, in this expression, it really plays to the comedy. It's well deployed in exemplifying the caricature he's looking for. What else do you need from me, boys? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for stopping by. <laughs> hey, it was a short commute. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? So yeah, there is other stuff in this movie. They also, for example, sing Putting on the Ritz. Which is a great number, come on. When I was a kid, oddly enough, that was the only part of this movie that felt weird to me because it could not stand up to my taking everything seriously. It just didn't seem right that they would do a number in the middle of the movie that otherwise I was pretty much just watching straight as a movie about Frankenstein and the castle. But I enjoyed it. Good. It's orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick, who is known as Stephen Sondheim's orchestrator for all of those musicals. And mm. maybe we should say where John Morris comes from. He met Mel Brooks when they were both called in to do script and music doctoring on a Broadway show, Shinbone Alley, 1957. Because that was something they were both doing. Right, it was a show that never actually made it. They didn't succeed in making it into a good show, but they struck up this relationship then. Yeah, they met working in musical theater, and obviously that was the foundation for Mel Brooks's first feature film, The Producers, and so he called in John Morris that he knew from working in musical theater, and John Morris had been a dance arranger, among other things, for Broadway shows. A musical arranger for dances, <laughs> not a choreographer. Oh, that's right, not a choreographer, <laughs> but the arranger of the special dance-specific music that often the composer of a musical either can't be bothered or can't be counted on to do the very technically specific timings necessary for mm -hmm. dance sequences. So, yeah, I didn't realize, but I, I did Bye Bye Birdie in high school, and yeah, there's that long, stupid dance that the Shriners do. <laughs> I guess John Morris wrote that. So, yeah, Mel Brooks brought him in to do the dance arrangement for Springtime for Hitler in the original movie of The Producers. Which is a song that Mel Brooks composed himself, but he recognized that he needed, yeah, a pro to get the specific technical requirements of a big dance number to play. Certainly, it doesn't take a lot of squinting to see that Mel Brooks has a theatrical sensibility that he brings <laughs> to his movies, but so does John Morris. I think the, the musical style in a lot of the Mel Brooks movies is 
sort of the Broadway approach. Right. And in this movie, because of that beautiful lullaby melody, it's mostly fairly subdued. There are a couple cues, and they're my least favorite cues in this, where you can sort of hear Broadway, especially the train cue. I feel it <laughs> kind of breaks character a little there. That's fair. I mean, I feel like that is perhaps the most referential cue in the movie, the most a parody of the way things used to be done. That is such classic train traveling music. Chugga digga, chugga digga, chugga digga. That I feel like that's an in joke, and he's not really doing that. Well, I guess, but it's chugga digga with a drum set, which would be the Broadway way rather than the Hollywood way. In any case, yet again, here's where he's got the winds going beep, 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 boop, 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 on the main melody, just chiming in. Yeah, I take issue with that a little bit because it feels like Broadway dramaturgy that the main thing you need to know here is that it's a scene from Young Frankenstein and this is theme from Young Frankenstein so we applied the theme to the scene and it's a train scene and you know here's the cliches that the scene are built out of and then indeed the point of the cue is that you hear uh, Americans doing silly American dialogue and then there's a wipe and now they're in quote Transylvania and they're doing the German equivalent of the dialogue and he's switched the orchestration to have a mandolin up front and that's supposed to signify that now we're in Romania. To me, that, and you know, also the good morning cue, for some reason at one point there's cliche morning music. <laughs> to my ear, those are places where the score has a lapse in its commitment to the serious, feelingful movie about these people's hmm. heritage and the call of Frankenstein in the old country. What about the uh, what about the trombone slide when the camera zoom is into Marty Feldman's eye? Dr. Frankenstein. Well, that's a horror. That's a horror sting. No, the trombone is not horror. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little. It's close enough. You're right. I mean, a trombone slide is not too dignified, but... It's a shock effect, and that's an old-fashioned thing in its way. A lot of this score is really just little punctuation marks like that. That's a very good point, and one that I wanted to make about the movie as a whole and the way the music fits into it is that, boy, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie without music. There are a lot of seemingly key moments. There's a lot of transitions, you know, old-fashioned wipes across the screen, circle wipes and uh, what do you call it? Tidy wipes. Thank you. You know, the various uh, kind of hokey old editing techniques that I was constantly feeling, oh, why, why, why are we doing music for this? Big moments when uh, Peter Boyle finally stands up off of the operating table and takes his first steps after he's been brought to life. You know, no music for that. No music for that opening suspense scene where the guy's opening up a coffin, grabbing something out of the skeleton's hands. And I think that this is also an attempt to play the genre sincerely, because as you said, in those old 30s movies, there's really not music the way that there is now. The score does not hold your hand through these visual transitions. It doesn't give you this establishing information about a scene. A lot really does play with this kind of emptiness that has a kind of classiness to my ears because it's distinctly old-fashioned. He does drop in for a lot of strategic little editorial transitions. But little, little moments, you know, three seconds long. Like the first time we see the corpse of Peter Boyle before he's reanimated, we get just this little trill. When he's on the slab. Yeah. All the music does is just a little functional grease to move us along. Just something here. Just a little dab on the film going by. 
Or when Cloris Leachman first opens the door and comes out and shows her face, there's, I think, about 10 seconds of build-up to that. And it's just to match that one motion. It's not to score a whole scene. There were a lot of things like that where just from here to here, 10 seconds, a little bit of color. But it's all done sensitively. And I think that Mel Brooks and John Morris stayed together for all of those movies because it takes a really shared sensibility about the theater showmanship of this stuff, how the comedy works. I mean... John Morris in this movie is playing it so straight that you don't even really get the sense of him as a comedian, but it's so clear he completely understood Mel Brooks. So in High Anxiety from a few years later, which is, a, I think in his mind, let's do the same thing except with Alfred Hitchcock as the source material. Right. Nonetheless, the tone is a little different and the tone of the music there is a little different. There's a music joke right in the opening titles. The opening sequence is he's at the airport, he gets off a plane, and then he thinks someone's going to kill him in the airport. There's a bunch of fake-outs, Hitchcockian kind of moments of suspense as he walks through the airport and they're all scored to the hilt and beyond with this Morris music. It's not really parodying Herman, but it's parodying the extremes of intensity of that mode of movie making subject to and then he gets out of the airport and says punchline. What a dramatic airport. (laughs) The music in that sequence is not doing what the young Frankenstein music is doing. It is in fact mocking or exaggerating for the purposes of parody the cinematic conventions. And I don't feel like that's what the score in Young Frankenstein ever does. It's not saying, boy, those old movies were so over the top. Its relationship to its references is subtler than that. I mean, just to talk a little more about the dun-dun-dun, the chipmunk, (laughs) when you say dun-dun-dun, if someone says something dramatic and you say dun-dun-dun, what uh, pattern do you say it in? Do you say dun-dun-dun like that? Or do you go dun-dun-dun? Or do you have a different configuration? I don't know if I do this. Do you never do that? It's not in my customary bag of tricks, but let me see. I feel like I've heard it done with... uh, I've heard it done by going dun-dun-dun. Yes, that's what I was going to say. There's another one going around. There's this uh, library cue from the 80s that's that configuration. Dun-dun-dun. I think that one's out there mostly because of Ren and Stimpy, and then I think SpongeBob SquarePants used it. And you hear it all the time now. Yeah, I think mine is usually dun-dun-dun. Uh-huh. And this one that John Morris has picked, it's a really nice balance. It's so fast. It's so clean. And I think he only really does it at full volume once more in the movie when they arrive at the castle. Yeah, for the big matte painting establishing shot of the castle, which I got to feel like that's the one that got put on the chipmunk, right? Yeah, I think that is the audio for the chipmunk. Home. I believe in this movie they are also using the famous sound effect Castle Thunder which is the lightning and thunder sound effect, the tropiest such sound effect that sort of has its own reputation for being one of those sound effects you hear all the time, which was indeed originally recorded for Frankenstein 1931. (laughs) And this music is such a perfect analog of that. It's a joke if you want to take it as referential, but if you just back away from it, it's serving its purpose very well. It is a good lightning flash motif.
So let's say John Morris, did he win an Academy Award or just get a nomination? I think he was just nominated. Yeah, he was nominated for the song that he wrote along with Mel Brooks for Blazing Saddles, that title song that we we talked about Frankie Lane singing in our episode about High Noon. He rode a blazing saddle, he wore a shining star. And then he was also nominated for his score to a serious movie. The Elephant Man, the David Lynch movie. That's right, The Elephant Man, the David Lynch movie that Mel Brooks was a producer on, but which is not a comedy. No, in fact, it's hauntingly sad. But John Morris, you know, is inescapably a comedy guy. In addition to his run of Mel Brooks movies, I think a score that a lot of people will be familiar with is his score for Clue. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can remember the music, you know, at the end when Tim Curry is running around and showing all the different ways that things could have happened and boom, 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 boom beloved John Morris work. And then for me, idiosyncratically, one of my favorite movies, because it's one of my family's favorite movies, is the original The In-Laws, I think from 1979, starring Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. And John Morris did the score for that. Sounds like this. And I just love it deep in my bones. I love this. Here's uh, the attempted sequel to Young Frankenstein that didn't work. Mel Brooks wasn't involved, but it had everyone else. Gene Wilder made the Sherlock Holmes equivalent of Young Frankenstein. I think it's called The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Right, right. And he did, you know, comic detective movie music for that, too. Actually, it sounds like he's doing Korngold, Captain Blood. But these are all skilled. I mean, comedy is hard, as they always say. And he understood how comedy worked and how it related to music and was able to do this with great skill. But Young Frankenstein still, I think, stands apart from those in that it plays comedy by playing the undercurrent of seriousness that you sort of have to live with. I mean, Mel Brooks himself is on record many times saying that this is his finest work. Yeah, and I think that's probably right because the kitchen sink attitude to comedy is, I think, redeemed by the wholeness of the shell around it of this actually sort of serious-feeling movie about Frankenstein. One of the things I found interesting in reading making of the movie stuff about this movie was an anecdote where Marty Feldman was saying that the Walk This Way gag, when he first shows up... Walk this way! He's got a little cane to hold himself up with his asymmetric posture. This way! And he's coming down the stairs, walk this way, to Gene Wilder, and he says, this way! And then gives him the cane so he can imitate him exactly. Apparently, the origin of that being in the movie is that Marty Feldman did that on set to, you know, amuse the crew, just did it uh, in the spur of the moment. And Mel Brooks said, "Okay, let's film that. And he said, no, we we can't film that. That's an old joke. You can't put that in a movie. That's just a standard shtick. And Mel Brooks said, no, 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 they'll laugh at it. And Gene Wilder said, you got to get him to take that out. It's embarrassing. We can't do that in the movie. And Marty Feldman recounting this said... Well, Gene and I were wrong and Mel was right because Mel has this incredible sense for what the audience will laugh at. He somehow knew that that would work, even though, indeed, the point of it is kind of, we're doing old shtick, we're doing a vaudeville bit. 
Yeah, I mean, Gene Wilder gets a take at the camera. He rolls his eyes about, I can't believe they're making me do this old shtick <laughs> right there on camera. Yeah, Marty Feldman's words. All I know is when Mel says, let's do it, chances are he's right, even if you don't know why. He knows what people will laugh at. It's an instinct, like musicians have a sense of what swings. Did you see that, in fact, somebody who really thought that that joke swung was uh, Steven Tyler and Aerosmith? Yeah, the Aerosmith song, Walk This Way, is taken from that line. I had no idea. It's from that line in that movie, Yeah. <laughs> walk this way they were inspired i mean i should have guessed listening to the song it's so clear that it's about young (laughs) frankenstein also a thing i learned that was interesting to me i always wondered why do they sing ah sweet mystery of life Uh aha an operetta number from you know victor herbert from 1910 who knew that in 1974 because now nobody knows it as anything other than the thing they sing in young frankenstein well i found out why they sing it it was madeline khan's idea that that is what she sings when the uh mystery of life is thrust upon her yes mel brooks had scripted it that she would sing heaven i'm in heaven from the song cheek to cheek the irving berlin tune she said that didn't work it was madeline khan's insight that it had to be a song that started with ah with an ah or an o sound so that she could be exclaiming and transition into the song which she was of course dead right about And then John Morris takes up the joke. Did you hear that? Yes, he uses it a few times as though it's just part of his material. I mean, I think that's what that's supposed to be. I'm not sure. It could be coincidence. But he definitely uses it. That's the end titles. The end credits start with the horn playing it. Yeah. The last thing we hear is Terry Garr this time singing uh, Sweet Mystery of Life, At Last I Found You. And then the end title music starts with Igor playing on his horn. The answering phrase... I know at last the secret of it all, the next little bit of melody. And then it goes from there into the rest of the end titles material. When people write in to say it's Igor, you'll just say, no, it's not. <laughs> I'll say he came to embrace his true call. Yeah, I mean, he only says Igor to needle Frankenstein for <laughs> being perverse, right? Why does he suggest that if it's Frankenstein, it may as well be Froderick? There's no, I, like, for a while I was wondering if it was spelled F-R-O-E-D. Um, it's because when you look in the script, every time it says Frankenstein, they've spelled it as F-R-O-N-K. And then the joke sort of becomes coherent as, well, why didn't you spell Frederick with an O? But uh, no one can see that O, so it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Well, we're really answering the tough questions here. As for Victor Herbert, there's a cutscene on the DVD where they were going to have an old-fashioned credits march where everyone in the movie is going to actually walk by the camera and they all come down the stairs. And apparently Mel Brooks told them that the end credits was going to be Ah Sweet Mystery of Life and everyone in the cast is singing it discordantly. <laughs> you see the shot of that happening in publicity materials, right? It's a poster of the film where everybody's walking down the staircase. Yeah, it's pretty cute that they do this, but also it's completely disorderly. They look like they know it's not going to get used. (laughs) But Madeline Kahn had this naughty Marietta in her head because she was sort of a... She did a little bit of legit singing. Oh, I mean, you can tell. Yeah, she's a real singer. I didn't know until looking into this that her first big break as a performer in New York City was she was chosen to sing Glitter and Be Gay from Candide at Leonard Bernstein's, I guess, 50th birthday party concert. Wow. And there's a bootleg of it that's out there. I had no idea it was out there. I listened to it, and she nails it. Of course she does. She's fantastic. 
she was a real genius. Like, her comedic sensibilities seemed so modern in this movie. She seemed very ahead of her time. Like, little motions she makes with her mouth seem like Kristen Wiig, among other people. Oh, a lot to her. Oh, that's very true, I'm sure. Anyway, she was just the greatest. Oh, well, there's a musical joke, deserves a notice. When uh, Frau Blucher uh, <laughs> reveals that she has been the one trying to push him back into being a Frankenstein, because yes, he was my boyfriend. She is playing the violin and playing her own punctuation, right? which is sort of a musician joke that he put in there. But we should play that bit, right? It's a great bit. And it was you all the time. Yes. You played that music in the middle of the night. Yes. To get us into the laboratory. Yes! That was your cigar. I think Murray Feldman has my favorite little moment of shtick in the movie. I mean, there's so many, but when Gene Wilder is playing the big theme on the violin over the loudspeaker from the top of the castle at the end, Marty Feldman is sitting there with a horn, (laughs) and he's going to play the little interstitial phrase between the violin phrases, sitting there while Gene Wilder is making his way through the main melody. He's sitting there very diligently and concertedly counting rests in his part on the music stand (laughs) before he stands up and plays into the microphone. So that scene, when the monster is called back to the castle by the sound of Gene Wilder playing the violin through a loudspeaker, and then he climbs up to fairly emotional music. Really emotional music. Yeah. It's not parody music, and it's not a parody scene. Please find creation! Just how it relates to, you know, Marty Feldman being there goggling at it. It, it, It's a very strange collection of things. And yet it gels into one of the most beloved comedies of all time. I mean, I think that the most musically assertive cue in the movie is when Cloris Leachman sweeps into the laboratory, you know, to find the body of Peter Boyle there. And we get this big sweeping stirring statement of the big melody with a full orchestra i think it underlines that you know this is a movie about a real human connection that this is like the biggest the music gets about things it doesn't get this big about monster goings on it's playing it to the hilt about this emotional connection that for some reason this strange woman has with the monster she wants to create. She's the character from Rebecca, right? Who's just been shoved into this movie. Something like that, yeah. And that's what I've been saying all along. The movie keeps making gestures through this music that suggests that there is something to be taken seriously here, even though, how could that possibly be? How could it be? And yet there it is. funnier than the real human condition yeah jokes <laughs> jokes are funnier yeah well they've got those two i mean you know there's a they got a lot of stuff in this movie back to when you were asking what is even uh, going on in this movie is this a parody or not Do they, you know how much are they serious about this maybe we should sort of try to wrap back around to those bigger questions that we had Do you remember when we used to try to do closing statements at the end of these episodes? Maybe we should try that again. Yeah, we should have been doing that all along. We, uh... Uh, Oh, well. We've been neglectful. Time to make a statement of closing. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, at the beginning, I tried to uh, problematize whether this was a parody. 
But yeah, I think you basically put your finger on it when you said that Mel well, Brooks. Thank you. When you said that Mel Brooks's humor is about the come down, mm-hmm. which it's not a critique. The Mel Brooks come down is just kind of a spiritual regrounding back to the everyday. Don't let your fantasies run away with you. Always to be reminded of what's real, the way humor is real. That's what he believes in. Yeah. And that doesn't entail any actual disdain for the thing that you're being grounded from. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie, in all his output, does kind of stand apart because I think at some level the emotional life of the story here and of this music making it be so is actually congruent with what that move means. Something like Spaceballs, it's just like an exercise to apply his take to uh, some subject matter. Oh, Star Wars, more like Spaceballs, right? (laughs) Uh, But it doesn't mean anything beyond that. But because of what Gene Wilder and John Morris have brought to this movie, and I think also because of what it meant to Mel Brooks, there's a little more going on here. He tells a story sometimes about how when he was five years old, he saw Frankenstein 1931 in the theater. That's how old Mel Brooks is. And it terrified him. And he didn't want to sleep with his window open because he thought the monster would come in and kill him. And he says his mother said to him, Listen, the monster doesn't live in Brooklyn. The monster lives in Transylvania. This is apparently where that got started. (laughs) So first he would have to cross the ocean. And how is he going to get a ticket to cross the ocean? He doesn't even have pockets. He doesn't have any money. So even if someone gave him a ticket, the boat might go to Miami. It doesn't necessarily go to New York. And even if he comes to New York, he doesn't know how to get to Brooklyn. And even if he comes to Brooklyn, he doesn't know where our house is. And even if he gets here, the windows are open on the first floor. He'll probably eat the people on the first floor. So you have nothing to worry about. (laughs) And you can sort of see how... That's like a formative story for Mel Brooks's outlook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, like all his humor derives from that story. I mean, there's the undercutting of the monster. You know, like, oh, a monster's going to come and eat me. Oh, well, first he has to, you know, go through all this uh, right. kind of uh, drudgery. It's exactly what you described. Yeah. What I'm saying is it's his mother telling it to him, and I think that it was his actual fears, and it's his actual childhood. I mean, I think ultimately... That's the childhood he's referring to. Yeah. And the feelings about it are that when your mother tells you this story that grounds you, there's uh, some real emotion in that. The humor of being pulled out of the fear of the movie is a feelingful thing. And I think in in this movie, maybe (laughs) uniquely among Mel Brooks's movies, that feeling, the actual emotion of having this sense of humor is somehow wrapped up in the music. So I think that's why it's a particularly fine example of a comedy score, because it's more than that. I basically have the same statement with which to close, (laughs) but here's a slightly different cast on it, is um, what what makes anything funny? (laughs) Uh, I... (laughs) I've thought about this, and this is not really an original thought. I'm I'm regurgitating various things I've read, but my own theory of comedy, based on like an evolutionary biology motivation, is that the perception of humor is being happy to recognize that somebody else knows the same thing that you know. Mm -hmm. And how funny something is, is dependent on how interesting it is that somebody knows the same thing that you know. If it's like an unusual and unexpected thing that you both turn out to know, that's all the more funny. If it's obvious, then it's lame and it's not Mm -hmm. funny. Like airplane food doesn't usually taste that great. (laughs) Right. Well, it's not interesting for a comic to flaunt that he also knows that airplane food doesn't taste good because everybody knows that everybody knows that it doesn't taste good. You have to observe something that is, it's more noteworthy that we all know it. And I think what Morris is doing here 
in concert, yeah, like you're saying, with this formative, sincere attitude from Mel Brooks is showing the audience that they know about monster movies, but they know also about the human instinct to tell monster stories in the first place by undergirding it with sincerity. It's a more thorough demonstration of what the filmmakers know that you also know, and that just opens the door for it all to be funny. Is that something, or is that hooey? Oh, that's definitely something. Yeah, sitcoms have known this for years. Like, a very important part of beloved comedy is the feeling of uh, being in good company. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the movie definitely contains that in a way that not every spoof movie necessarily would. But it's there. You can hear it in the heart, in the music. Okay. Okay, Andy. Well, now that we have answered the sweet mystery of life for all of our audience, let's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see where we're headed next time. Okay. Let me get out... The balls and so forth. <laughs> the balls and so forth. Is that your attempt to avoid saying bucket? What, what are you referring to? Yeah. All right, here's the list, the so-called bucket. And here is our random number generator, the so-called ball machine. Here's all the stuff. I got it all set up here. I'm going to draw a number. All right. What sort of a thing will get assigned to us for next time? Swirl the numbers. Pick a number. <gasps> all right. Uh-oh. I have drawn. Oh, no. 1946 score to... 1946 now. Hmm. The best years of our lives score by ah. Hugo Friedhofer. Yeah, that is a very highly thought of score to a movie that is, uh, you know... A very rarely thought of movie. Yeah, it's less well known these days, but it is often held up as the breakthrough shining moment of Friedhofer, who is an orchestrator that we've talked about on the show before. Right, we talked about him for orchestrating on uh, Gone with the Wind and also for Korngold for Robin Hood. Yeah, that's right. And this is his time to shine in his own right. And this is actually quite an interesting movie. Yeah, this is one of the highly regarded film scores, sort of classically highly regarded film scores right. for years and years in the literature. This so. is a film score connoisseur's film score. Exactly. And who are we if not... Yeah, we were, I don't know who we are. Podcasters. But let's do this movie. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I haven't gone back to look into this since my first flush of, oh, I'm going to buy books about film scores and read up. It's been years. So I'll be very interested to check it out again. Yeah, this feels like an episode that, like, you know, should be in our catalog. So let's put it there, I guess. All right. Since we know you're all psyched for that one. Look, we'll make it fun. We'll have a good time, okay? Okay. It's a promise. I, I agree to have a good time. Done. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hopefully ever listening again. Thank you for uh, writing reviews about how you have listened and have enjoyed it, where you have had opportunities to write those reviews. They really uh, make us feel good. So thanks a lot to the people who do if that. If you enjoy the show, when given an opportunity to write a review, take that opportunity. Just grab it. Seize it. The show Twitter account is at Scoresettlers. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for telling your friends about the show. Yeah, please do. Please do. Beware of imitators. Just in case there are any imitators out there. <laughs> Anything else? It's amazing how little shtick from Young Frankenstein we did in this. <laughs> we really have grown. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah, I feel like actually maybe it's just like the presence of Mel Brooks actually dimmed our urge to do shtick because you, you can't compete with that. There's enough shtick already. Who could? Who could? Oh boy, the shtick we're going to make about uh, World War II veterans, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. That is an invitation to comedy. All right. <laughs> we'll see you then. See you then. See you then.